Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, this is Marcus King, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, with the show. I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling about half past dead. I just need some place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. No, was all he said. Diggers. The first lines from the band's most famous song. And that means we're going to talk about Robbie and the band today. Our guest is director Daniel Rohr of the new documentary, Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band. And we'll get to it very shortly after. A little bit of business, business, as they say. Well, not really business. I'm going to jump on the soapbox here. Okay, first of all, how's everybody doing? I sincerely hope everyone is okay. It's been a very tough few months and I think it's obvious that um, we are not out of any woods at this point Uh, not in the slightest and that fucking blows COVID-19 didn't magically go away when the weather got warmer and to be honest so many idiotic mistakes have been made in our country that we are so far behind getting through this situation in many ways we are the worst in the entire world i'm sorry to say 2.4 million cases 125,000 deaths and a consistent 5.2 mortality rate overall we have only slightly bent the curve but we are not really going down in cases. Uh, What has happened is that the epicenters just moved from place to place. You know, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, it appears to be dipping significantly, uh, but not in Southern California. But in Florida, uh, Texas, Arizona, wow, it's, holy crap, it's just surging. Um, Now, You know what? I'm a pragmatist, okay? So there are temporary times when you need to suspend your expectations. Uh, And as long as it's not a permanent situation, uh, and let's not go down slippery slopes and all this. I mean, 
it just it just shouldn't be a big deal, okay? For for what's going on, and and I think that's the problem is people just don't understand how significant this this pandemic really is. All right, um, just follow best practices. We're we're not getting anywhere back to some normalcy until there is either a vaccine or we have achieved what's called herd immunity, which is sixty percent plus of the population getting the virus, which would mean about 1.5 million deaths in this country, given the 5.2 mortality rate, which seems pretty common. Uh, I, I get opening the economy, but you know there's a way to do so and mitigate the risks until a vaccine is found or this thing runs its course. So please wash your hands like you did back in March. Limit your bubble of social interaction. Stay inside where you can. And wear the goddamn mask when venturing outside. It's good for you and everyone else. Those three simple things are not oppressing you. But they'll help bring the rates of infection down. There is a way to lessen the impact and keep you... and all you may come in contact with safe. Of course, there is not a perfect solution until we either find a permanent solution like a vaccine or we just suffer through with a lot of disease and death. Anyway, so why am I bringing this up in a music show? Because I want to go to a fucking music show, a live one. And I know you do too. But that is not going to happen while this COVID thing is still fucking with us. Please try to help and remember, it's all temporary. This is just something we have to do to get to the other side. We can discard the masks like they did in 1920. Get to the other side and we can go back to some kind of normalcy and at least get back to music. All right, secondly, racism sucks. <laughs> in fact... I think it should be classified as mental disease. It's learned behavior, and some are more susceptible to its ugliness than others, you know, like alcoholism. If you're a racist, seek help. Look, if you listen to this show or any of our other shows about modern music and are a racist, well, then you must be some kind of fucking stupid. Almost all modern music comes from black music. And if you haven't figured that out after listening to our shows for a bit, then I, we must be doing something wrong. Of course, I know most, maybe even all of you get that. But I just thought I should say it, you know, just in case. So yes, black lives matter. And the reason they do today is because they haven't much in this country in the past. So we need to make up for lost time. And it's not proper to say all lives matter at the moment. Uh, yeah, of course they do, but we are talking about the ones who have been systematically abused for 400 years. Sure, sure, we don't have slavery and your grandpappy didn't own slaves, but while the actual chains were removed in 1865, for another 100 years, metaphorical chains were kept on. But Obama, they say, well, yes, we've made progress for a few African-Americans. 
But for every Obama, there are a thousand Reuben the Hurricane Carters. Yes, that's a Dylan reference, just to keep it rock and roll. So it's a false equivalency meant to make certain white people happy about themselves, comfortable with their own racism, and an attempt to not do anything to address the problem and provide an easy excuse to put on a t-shirt. But I know that is not you guys. But I bet you might know somebody like this, like I do. I just found out about a family member who I won't be talking to anymore. Not that I spent much time talking to them in the first place uh, for a long time, but I'm not surprised that uh, they are who they turned out to be. Yeah, Maybe that's the reason for the rant. All right, time to get off the soapbox. I just felt I needed to say at least something, and since it's been a while, uh, and not only hasn't the pandemic gone away, we've seen a populace stuck in quarantine with time to think, and, and that's now beginning to lash out on a lot of things. And something tells me this is just the beginning of a long, hot summer. Okay. Let's leave all this behind for an hour or so and get into some rock and roll. We are back to the movies this week. Rag mama, rag. I can't believe it's true. Rag mama, rag. What did you do? I crawled up to the railroad track like a 419 scratching my back. Well, we uh, sure do a lot of band shows around here. Uh, I've had the extreme pleasure of interviewing John Simon, who produced the first two albums, uh, Elliot Landy, who shot the boys and helped create their image, and of course, fellow Pantheon podcast host Ty Listen, whose entire show is on the Canadian-American Godfathers of Roots music. You guys might think they're my favorite band. Well, really, (laughs) it's just the opportunities. And, you know, what is bubbling up in the culture? That's kind of what I look for in the first place. And the band is getting more recognition these days because Americana music is such a huge deal. Um, That's my theory anyway. Regardless, all of these interviews uh, have been interesting and fun. Uh, And, I, of course, I hope you all agree. So today, we have Daniel Rohr, the man behind the newest documentary on the guys who first backed Ronnie Hawkins and then Bob Dylan before striking out on their own from upstate New York in a house they called Big Pink. Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band is the film. And as the title states, this is Robbie's take. Yes, I am more than aware that Robbie and most of the other guys saw things differently Uh, certainly after the band broke up uh, or after Robbie left, and that uh, there was animosity uh, uh, and all of that. Uh, Yes, 
it, it is sad that Leon, Richard, and Rick are gone and not a part of the conversation about their history. And, and yes, it's conspicuous that Garth is absence, uh, uh, in, is absent in the film. Though, as you will hear, it's not uh, because he didn't exactly participate. Uh, uh, and therefore, you know, is it a complete telling? Well, first... Robbie wrote the songs, and Robbie was the one who kept it together and going when the others fell victim to uh, the calamities of being a 70s rock star. Not that Robbie wouldn't agree he dealt with his own demons, and so was only slightly better uh, than the other guys uh, with, uh, with their travails. But if this is Robbie's tale, he sure has a lot of love for the rest of them and is more than willing to give them credit for what they did do. He knows there is no band without those very particular guys. And that is all over this film. The story of the band is pretty well known in our rock and roll circles, and especially after we've had three guests give their accounts around here. But real quick for the uninitiated. Uh, first put together by Ronnie Hawkins, a real old school rockabilly from Arkansas who found success in Canada, which meant he needed a good band while incessantly touring the Great White North. And he put the lineup of Levon Helm, Robertson, Rick Danko, Richard Manuel, and Garth Hudson together as the Hawks. After a few years of learning the ropes, uh, they kind of outgrew him. Uh, and he's the first to admit it and even does so in the, in the film. Uh, trying things on their own, uh, but not having any songs, <laughs> they ended up becoming Bob Dylan's backup band as he went electric. Uh, Dylan, living in upstate New York, got them to Big Pink, and having Dylan around with a sponge like Robertson got them the songs they needed. In 1968, they released music from Big Pink, and because they were known around town as just the band, they took the moniker for a name. From there, they were off and running, becoming one of the most successful and influential bands in the world at the time, especially uh, influential to other musicians. Uh, Eric Clapton wanted to join. John Simon wanted to join. Everyone who was anyone loved what they were doing, which in 1968 was not what everyone else was doing. Between 1968 to 1976, they were on the wheel, both good and bad. In 1976, since bands didn't go on hiatus, uh, they decided to break up after one last big gig. Of course, that being the Thanksgiving Day show at Winterland Ballroom here in San Francisco, now known as The Last Waltz. Afterwards, Robbie found solo success and film work while the other guys languished a bit and then reformed without Robbie uh, for the oldie circuit. They never had a hit again, and they never reunited. Richard died at the age of 42 in 1986. Danko in 99 at 55, and Levon passed in 2012 at 71, leaving only Robbie and Garth still around to talk. So even though it is but one member's recollections and based on the Robertson autobiography testimony, which we reviewed on our Rock and Roll Librarian show, uh, I think the film is a fair telling of the history of the band. In fact, I'd say it is Robbie's love letter to the other guys who were once his brothers. He will be inexorably linked with them for all time, and he knows it. 
and wants us to know it too. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, let's get to the details and get to know the director of Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson, and the band... I give you director Daniel Rohr. When your arms are empty, got nowhere to go. Come on out and kiss the show. There'll be saints and sinners, you'll see losers and winners. All kinds of people you might want to know. Once you get it, you can't forget it. There'll be Welcome to Deeper Digs, Daniel Roar. How are you doing today? I can't complain. It's a beautiful day here in Toronto, Canada, where you're reaching me. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. Uh, we're really excited to talk about uh, your uh, new film, or fairly new film, uh, Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson in the band. Uh, and um, uh, let's see. I, I, I think I, I, I want to start with... Um, I think we have to start with condolences to one of your collaborators, uh, music supervisor on the film, David Heyman, uh, just passed. You, you want to talk a little bit about him? Uh, you know, first, I really want to thank you for giving me that opportunity. Um, 
David, Dave passed away a couple days ago, very suddenly. And it's been an absolute shockwave to the Canadian music and film industry. Uh, he was the most passionate, lovely guy. I was on his podcast a couple of months ago. And, you, you know, it, it's just a tremendous loss. And, and I, I, I will so miss his passion and, and just energy and, and love for all things music and film. Yeah, and he was the music supervisor on uh, Once We're Brothers, and so I'm sure, I mean, come on, this is a rock doc. He must, you guys must have been attached at the hip uh, during the production of this. We worked very closely together, and what I really appreciated about that working relationship, it was never, oh, we can't do that, we can't get that. It was always, oh, let's let's make it happen. And he just brought this positive spirit and energy to everything he did, and I was so you know, I, you don't realize it at the time how amazing that is. I, 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 you know, it's only in retrospect. I was like, what an awesome guy. How amazing it was that he was on the team. And, um, you know, it's just a tremendous loss. And, and my condolences go out to his entire family and friends and loved ones. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to hear that. And I can't imagine the devastation uh, you all must be feeling uh, up there. So. Um, so usually I've been asking most of my guests, uh, first, you know, how's life been in the age of COVID-19 for you? Oh, everything's, I mean, nothing's fine, but everything's fine. It's one of those things. So I, I appreciate you asking, but my situation is just like, I'm still working on my stuff. I got films to make. I, I have a lot of artwork and other things that are keeping me busy and occupied. And thankfully, knock on wood, my family and all my loved ones are safe and sound and, uh, uh, you know, in Canada, for the most part, we seem to have things uh, under control more so than in the U.S., so I'm grateful for that as well. Uh, well, you have a more competent leader than we do, and we'll, we'll just leave it at that. I, I agree. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, why did you become a, a documentarian? Well, documentary is this interesting medium and exists mm. at, at the crossroads of so many things I was interested in. So first and foremost, I'm a filmmaker. I don't like to pigeonhole myself, calling myself a documentarian, but really documentary is what I'm interested in and what I'm passionate about. Because for me, when I was younger and getting into the art form, documentary was the combination of so many things that I was passionate about. So travel and history and human rights and different cultures around the world and cinematography and editing and, and filmmaking and music Documentary brought all of these things together in a way that was just really, you know, fascinating for me. And, uh, you know, what I love about documentary is that it's just there's this idea for, you know, for archival based films that my next project is in some, you know, storage locker or closet somewhere waiting to be discovered. Mm. Just the idea of like uncovering this buried treasure is really exciting and captivating. I love watching documentaries more than fiction, I would say. Um, and, you know, life, reality truly is stranger than fiction. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's just my medium. Everything I do, all my creative pursuits are in um, uh, are in pursuit of documenting and chronicling the world around me, my experiences and sometimes old rock and roll bands. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get into some rock and roll bands. Uh, you know, uh, I guess the first question is, you know, what's music to you? I mean, you know, you're you're a young man. Um, you were not around uh, for any of the band's existence. Uh, that I can tell just by looking at you. But you know, what 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 is the music 
to you? What, what are you into? What, are, what did you grow up with? Well, it, it's funny. I, I mean, the music that I grew up with, I think, came to me through the radio that was my parents. My dad had this gigantic box full of old cassette tapes, and I would listen to those on my cassette player and then later CD player. But the music that I was always drawn to was not the music of my generation. Oh. I really liked Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and inevitably through the canon of that type of music, the band. There was something about the music. I really liked the words. They sounded so poetic to me, so lyrical and rhythmic. And the harmonies, um, there's there's an, or, an organic feel to that music that really resonated me, with me from a very young age. And chief among those groups was the band. They occupied a space in my mind that was just, you know, they were the very best, the, 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 this combination of guys. I didn't know much about them. There's a mystery in my mind about who they were, but the music they made was just so killer and so amazing and like nothing I'd ever heard before, but, but almost like something that had always been there. Bruce Springsteen says that in my movie. The band's music was nothing you'd ever heard before, but it had always been there. And, and it really, really resonated with me since I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. All right. So you were a fan of, uh, of the band uh, prior to uh, being attached to the project. That's good to know. Uh, probably uh, important uh, uh, to be uh, uh, chosen as the director for this, uh, this flick that was going to be made, huh? Well, I, I would certainly think so. I, I mean, the way I, I came to getting this job was, was that Robbie's memoir came out and you know, I, I devoured it. I thought it was fantastic. And yeah, testimony. I, mm. Testimony. And, mm. and I, I was like, I have to make this into a film. And I convinced myself that I was the guy to do it. And then it just became a question of convincing the rest of the world of that. Mm. Um, and uh, that was a little bit more difficult. But <laughs> I, I, I came to this because I just love the band. I, I love their music. You know, I, I watched The Last Waltz a thousand times. They were just the coolest guys. And when I was a little boy... Uh, my, my dad used to take us on canoe trips, camping trips up in northern Ontario in Algonquin Park, one of our fabulous um, um, provincial parks here in Ontario. And we would be paddling, you know, in a very Canadian moment through these little creeks and river systems. And of course, one of his songs that he would always sing is up on Cripple Creek by the band. Um, and so that's where I associate my early band memories from are those canoe trips and, and the iconography of, of those experiences. Yeah, so it really is in the DNA, thank, uh, thanks to your father and uh, his musical choices. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, uh, the greatest hits would have been, you know, on the radio and, and in his record collection. I had to, to dig a little deeper when I wanted to, to, to learn a little bit more about them and figure, figure out where they came from. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, a lot of, you know, great Canadian artists, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, uh, and uh, and others. Uh, obviously, most of the band is Canadians. Uh, so I, I can understand why uh, you and your family would gravitate uh, to them. Uh, you mentioned Bob Dylan. And, you know, the lyrical quality, the, the rhythmic sense, uh, do you not find that in today's music? Um. I think there are a couple examples of contemporary singers and songwriters uh, that really speak to me. Um, but I think what they're, what they're looking for is something from the past. Mm -hmm. um, there's a classic quality to their work. Um, you know, 
I love Lana Del Rey's last album. Oh. I, I love uh, Phoebe Bridgers. I think she's a phenomenal songwriter. Um, I, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, I'm sure I could give you a list a mile long, but off the top of my head, um, uh, it's more challenging. But broadly, top 40 radio hits today doesn't speak to me as much. Um, there's some rap and hip hop music that I think has phenomenal writing, just extraordinary writing. Um, you know, Chance the Rapper, ASAP Rocky, Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I think some of that stuff is just really incredible and kid live live alongside you know my favorite music from history but by and large the music that's being made today is almost like a regurgitation of itself it's not particularly interesting to me um uh, but when i hear something that resonates you know i really uh, uh grasp onto it Okay, so you uh, read Robbie's uh, uh, 2016 uh, memoir, uh, Testimony, and that convinced you, you you've got to make a movie of this. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned that uh, you, know, you were pretty determined, but you needed to convince others. So yes. how did you go about doing that? Well, you know, it, it was just this, like, understanding that I did not have the most— um, Impressive CV. I didn't have the most impressive amount of credits or IMDb page, but I had a few. And what I made up for, or or what I what I lacked in credits, I made up for in, in passion and energy for the material. Um, and so what I ended up doing was just writing on spec, you know, a massive treatment, uh, uh, you know, thirty page document about how I would make this film, what my approach would be, and then I showed it to who anyone who would look at it. In, in the Canadian media world, because I understood it would be a Canadian film. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they ended up giving the job to another filmmaker. Oh. There's another filmmaker attached originally, and I was heartbroken, but, you know, this business is, is about um, uh, uh, perseverance, and, and, you know, I just had to uh, shrug that off and keep grinding. And, uh, and what ended up happening is that Robbie didn't get along with that particular filmmaker. They didn't have the right chemistry and energy. Um, and, uh, so they needed someone else and I had all this work done, all this prep and Robbie was like, why don't we look at that kid, uh, who was bugging us a couple months ago. Um, and, uh, and I met with Robbie and we really hit it off. Yeah. Uh, because uh, again, the, the, the film's full title is once we're brothers, Robbie Robertson in the band. And it is definitely, uh, his story, uh, you know, like his memoir, uh, traveling through the memories of this uh, particular act. Um, and as we go through our talk today, there, there, there's dissension and it's fraught with controversy um, uh, and things like that. Uh, and it, it must have been kind of a hard uh, job to present, you know, a documentary was supposed to be, you know, as factual as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're getting one person's side of, of a story that any of us who are, you know, knowledgeable about, uh, the, the band's history knows that there, there, there's a, there's a disconnect, uh, between, you know, Robbie's side and what's considered leave on side, uh, out there. I, I think, um, you know, Richard who, who passed, uh, in the, uh, in the eighties and Rick who passed in the nineties, um, you know, while they had some things to say, it was really Levon and, and, and Robbie that were kind of at loggerheads, wouldn't you say? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, there's a, a lot in there that you just spoke to, so I'll try and unpack it a little bit. Yes. Um, you know, by and large, it's like, yeah, the name's in the title. This is not a film about the band. I'm very clear about that. It's being marketed and branded as a film about the band. So fans of the band will watch it, but I did not make a film about the band. I made a film about the band through the perspective and uh, of Robbie Robertson, one of the members of the band. Yeah. And that's a very different movie. And if people are not interested in hearing and learning about Robbie Robertson's perspective, I totally get that. But, you know, criticism I received that it's just one-sided, that's literally what it is. It is Robbie's perspective on what happened. Each and every member of the band um, um, have their own memories and perspectives, I'm sure. There wasn't someone following these guys around taking notes. I don't know that any one guy's memories are objective truth. It is their truth. I know that that phrase is, is sort of a trope that's entered our popular culture, but it really uh, works. Very Kira Kurosawa there. Right. It is. It's very much their. It's Robbie's truth. And if there are people who think that Robbie shouldn't have the right to tell his story, well, then they don't have to watch the movie. But I really hope that people will give it a chance. Um, and although I don't necessarily agree with your premise that documentary filmmaking has to be a hundred, you know, as factual as possible. I'm more interested in feeling and emotion and capturing the spirit of a time and a place and, and an experience than capturing it verbatim factually, like a dictionary or uh, 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 an encyclopedia entry might. Um, and there are, I have colleagues who would push back against that and, and, and view their roles as filmmakers differently, but that's just my approach. Uh, I'm more interested in the spirit of things uh, than in, um, you know, uh, getting bogged down in details and, and uh, um, uh, chronology. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. Well, uh, is it, uh, it, it, it makes me think, uh, is it any different than the interpretation of a song? Uh, you know, the artist uh, puts something together, they put it out. And once it leaves their hands, it's not really theirs anymore. It's uh, it's the the viewers or the listeners, uh, and they interpret it in the way that that they want. And uh, and I think uh, the more universality that you get to it, the more spirit that you get to it, the more open to interpretation that becomes. Yeah, I I really agree with what you said. And ultimately, for individuals who frame this as a Robbie versus Levon thing, you know, I kind of shrug at that and say, oh, okay, that's totally your prerogative to, uh, 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 to think like that. But at the end of the day, I hope people will have an open mind because no matter how you frame this perceived conflict or narrative in your head, um, I made this film because I love those guys, mm -hmm. each and every one of them. Yeah. Levon's like the, one of the most distinguished, biggest heroes of my life. You know, I get emotional thinking about this because it's like, I see myself so much in 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 the band as just being young men who who wanted to make their mark and do something great um and when i was making the film i was having these reoccurring dreams that i was at big pink in 1968 uh you know sitting across from richard and rick and trying to convince them to be in the movie you know just give me a quick interview it won't take long and they were just smoking weed and goofing off and not really engaging with me so I, I, you know, I have a phenomenal reverence for the group, like so many fans. I love them. It's the soundtrack to my life. I will be playing their songs around a campfire for my great-grandchildren. 
And I hope that people will recognize that's the spirit in which I came to making this movie. Mm -hmm. And because of my love and admiration, hopefully um, people who are hesitant or skeptical will be willing to uh, to give the film a chance. Yeah, I, I think they should. Um, and that begs the question. You, 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 that, that, that's really interesting that if you were sitting in, uh, in Big Pink uh, uh, with the guys, along with John Simon, uh, producer of, uh, of the first two albums, uh, who is in the film, um, there is one member that is still alive uh, besides Robbie, and that's Garth, who is not in the film. So I, I, I might ask, why is he not or was it presented to him or, or you know, what, what is the answer to that? Well, I actually interviewed Garth. I went and shot an interview with Garth for the movie. But anyone who is a, a fan of the band and certainly a fan of Garth knows that Garth has never in his life been able to fully communicate most effectively through interviews. Um, if you want to know Garth's thoughts and beliefs, sit him behind an organ and have him play. Um, and and uh, when we interviewed him, um, you know, Garth is quite elderly at this point. And although, you know, it was a, a really incredible honor for me to just spend a couple hours with him, um, we felt that, or I felt that it just wouldn't have worked in the movie. Um, uh, and, uh, and so I made the decision that we would just use archival interviews and things like this. But this idea that some journalists have written about that, oh, Garth didn't sanction the movie or he didn't like Robbie and doesn't want to be in the film or be associated with it is nonsense. I mean, uh, they have, uh, you know, obviously a, a profound mutual respect and love for one another mm -hmm. that continues until today. Garth has had some challenging moments in his life. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I can just say as a fan, it was really a unique experience to get to go to the Kingston Diner at three in the morning and have grilled cheese with Garth Hudson. It was a very Hudsonian experience. I bet. I bet. Uh, so that's good to know. Uh, you, you know, the, it, it, it was a thought. Uh, you guys did uh, record an interview. And, uh, you know, uh, those of us who know a little bit about filmmaking, you know, it, it, if, it, if it doesn't propel the story and it doesn't work, it's just, you know, it, you have to cut it. You have to edit it out. And uh, that sounds like basically what happened. Yeah, I would say that 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 is 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 very much what happened. And, you know, it's very challenging. There's a lot you want to put in the movie. But in this specific context, I just didn't think it would be the most effective uh, a, a storytelling device. Right, right, right. All right. So the the, the movie uh, starts off, uh, you know, at the beginning uh, and it starts with Robbie and, and Robbie becoming a guitar player. Uh, and, uh, and like so many of those rockers of that age, you know, they are you know, their world is literally rocked uh, yeah. overnight uh, with the inception of rock and roll and so i might ask you you know what did you think of those early rock and rollers that inspired robbie and so many others well it's a great question and, and ultimately i think that there's a disconnect because how i perceive those rock and rollers like if you look at old footage from the dick clark show um and and you see performance footage of ronnie hawkins I don't think it's aged particularly well they're in funny costumes it's a little bit cheesy but I guarantee you that if you went down to Le Coq d'Or in downtown Toronto on a Saturday night in 1959 or 1960 to see Ronnie Hawkins, it would be a very different show. And you hear that on record. You don't see it in the live performances. And, and there's an old, there's an old 
um, performance of Ronnie Hawkins in the movie. And Robbie told me, he's like, Levon always hated that performance. He thought that it was so corny. The television studio made them put on these Southern style costumes. Um, and to really appreciate them, you really had to see them live. But you can hear it on record. Those songs are hot. They're, they're lacerating. Um, the energy and power uh, is, is quite amazing. And, uh, and so I try to bring that, that spirit out in the movie. Yeah, what, one of my favorite things about the band uh, is they exposed Ronnie Hawkins to a greater audience after the fact. Yeah. who was just a fucking wild man uh, and deserved way more uh, attention than perhaps he got. I, I know he was, you know, fairly uh, big in Canada, not so much yeah. uh, in, in the United States. Uh, and that's why he spent so much time up there. And that's why his band ended up being primarily Canadians, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ronnie Hawkins is a legend. He is yes. like, he is a legend. I think he's yeah. the best, one of the best parts of my movie. He's so funny. And and there's no artifice like Ronnie Hawkins in the movie. That's how the dude is. No, there's. He's, I have heard a million stories. They're yeah. all the same. They're just as wild as the last one and the next one. He used to have these gigantic parties at his place up in Northern Ontario and invite like 500 people and put on these these performances. And the cops would show up, but then the cops would end up coming and joining in. And he was just he's an absolute legend. There's no other way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's something that you, you, you mentioned that, that I, I want to delve a little bit deeper into. And that is that you're right. Uh, you know, that piece uh, in the film uh, on uh, Canadian television does come across as very kitschy. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of early rock and roll, um, especially uh, to younger generations, is in, in, in even I mean, you even get into the spinal tap period here where, where even, you know, the 70s sort of rockers are beginning to look a little uh, dated, if you will. But yeah. I, I, I kind of wonder if this is from, you know, a, a bit of overexposure um, uh, in, in a weird sort of way. You know, uh, you know rock and roll was always mysterious. Um, you, you know, it, 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 again, it was anti-establishment. So, uh, you know, it kind of did its own thing uh, out there. The media was a little confused by it. And you also had a lot of restrictions on being able to record uh, it, both audio and video back in the in the day. Whereas now, you know, everybody's got a cell phone and uh, everybody is out there uh, doing that. So I, I wonder if some of that is that this this idea of the the mysteriousness has kind of all been swept away. What do you think? Um, I don't know if I would describe it as mysterious. I think I would just describe it as otherworldly. When rock and roll came on the radio, and Robbie describes it in his in his experience as the big bang moment, it was like nothing they had ever heard before. Yeah. And it was so new. It was so fresh. Those sounds... You know, the blues, these southern fried voices, these howling wild men. Mm -hmm. It was like nothing that they had seen in their lived experience. Now we live in a context where we are constantly bombarded and oversaturated with media and film and clips and music. And everything you can imagine is at your fingertips. And what's lost is the majesty and romantics, romanticism and magic of having to drive up to Toronto's highest hill to try and get your radio on a clear summer night to pick up the 15,000 watt antennas beaming out from Nashville, Tennessee, or coming over the border from Buffalo. Right. Just, just to taste the forbidden fruit, 
mm-hmm. hear the forbidden music. Mm-hmm. And that is awesome. Yeah. That to me is, is I don't have a similar experience in my life. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, you know, uh, I'm of the generation that, uh, you know, did kind of, you know, have to, you know, uh, you know, Muhammad had to go to the mountain, basically. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's uh, and now it is it, it, it's oversaturated and uh, and it just seems that it takes out. And that's a perfect uh, explanation. The majesty and the romanticism uh, seems to be waned. And what we're left with are these caricatures without the immediacy, the um, uh, the visceralness uh, that it, you would it, it get was a hundred percent. To me, it was immediate myth making. Hmm. Who were these guys? Yeah. Where did these sounds come from? It's really otherworldly. And that's not to say, you know, that I don't appreciate like modern communication. I think the internet is fucking bonkers. It's awesome. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. It's wonderful and beautiful and horrible. And all of these yeah. things is everything. Um, but there's something really special, I think, about having your little crystal radio set and being a Robbie Robertson or an Eric Clapton or, you know, a Jimmy Page. And, you know, after your, your mom puts you to sleep, you get, get your little radio radio and you try and tune it to pick up these forbidden sounds. That's just really cool. And uh, that's certainly the spirit of a lot of these early rock and roll guys, what, what their youths were like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, R.I.P. Little Richard, uh, you know, a contemporary of Ronnie uh, there just passed away. And that was, yeah, we're left with one now. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis is the last of the originals. Uh, And and Ronnie, Ronnie didn't quite uh, achieve the the fame and notoriety and legendary status that uh, that the others uh, have in the public consciousness. You and I may disagree with that and feel that Ronnie deserves a little bit more. But, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, that age is is dying literally uh, and figuratively and uh, you know uh, it's nice to capture as much of this as we can before um, this special moment I, 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 I think both of us would agree that you know this period in music history is extraordinary uh, musicians were not treated like this prior to the rock and roll age and and I don't think they're going to be treated like uh like the uh you know jet setting uh, rock stars uh, that uh, we think of uh in the late 20th century uh much longer I think uh, I think you know music used to be the um the touchstone uh the language of the generation and uh you know as you just said the internet or more more precisely social media now is that a language and that touchstone to uh, to the youth today. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think music still resonates and, and has a, um, mm-hmm. you know, amongst the art forms anyway, is on the highest pedestal, but it's so ubiquitous and accessible. Music is like so natural to life. It's like breathing or oh, drinking God, water. Yes. Yeah. I, but I, if they say mathematics is the language of the universe, uh, music based on mathematics is the sound of the universe, the voice of the universe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that, that, that I totally agree with. But, um, you know, broadly speaking, um, yeah, it's certainly a different time. I don't know how kids consume media today. Like, you know, I, I don't appreciate it, but I'm 26 now. I don't really think about how 14-year-olds or 12-year-olds or 18-year-olds even are consuming media. Probably a lot differently than when I was their age, even TikTok. though it was only. No, there you go. <laughs> I don't really even know what that is, but it, it 
Like, that's how you know, like, oh, I'm not a kid anymore. Like, there's shit out there that's super popular. Like, I don't even know what the fuck TikTok is. Oh, but... oh wait, it gets worse. It gets worse as you get older. You you said you're 26. You're still a baby, so. No, I, I, I realize that, but it's obviously relative. And it's just like, this is the first time in my life I'm experiencing the sensation. Like, I don't know what the fucking kids are doing. Yeah, right, 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 right. But, um, yeah, it's just, it, so it's like, it, it just must have been a really magical time and place in the late 50s, early 60s to cling on to this, you know, early rock and roll music and have the sensation of like, oh, this is special. Mm. This is magical. And then for those instances to be validated by history. Well, you mentioned the- you, you mentioned it's, that a lot of the music today is being regurgitated, and you know at the at this time, um, you know by luck of the draw, uh, timing, you know it's all being invented. Uh, you know, post-war America, uh, dominant culture on the planet, uh, and then you know I think uh, it, you know it really begins with uh, you know the um, the true emancipation of African Americans in in this country. Uh, you know, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, separate uh, uh, is not equal uh and uh you know uh through technology uh white kids are exposed to uh, black music well uh, yeah absolutely and and you know i obviously can't speak to this critical race theory and all this i just don't know enough about it but Mm. um from what i can tell rock and roll is obviously just the appropriation of black culture Mm -hmm. um and uh you know, there's an injustice in that, an inherent injustice, just taking something, making it super famous, and and the people who invented it and whose part, whose culture it is actually from, do not benefit in largely in the wealth creation that exists. I'm sure it was very frustrating for Eric Clapton to come here and be like, "You guys don't know who fucking BB King is? Like, yeah. you worship us? It's like this is the man, this is the king, the king right here." Um, yeah, thank God for those English rockers who did. You know, basically uh, reintroduce uh, people like Howlin' Wolf and Willie Dixon uh, yeah. and uh, uh, Muddy Waters and so on uh, back into the American consciousness. But at the same time, the influx of rock and roll, which is black culture, into you know suburban white teenagers' uh, lexicon and experiences, uh, I think, you know, maybe I, I don't know, largely in a, in a big way, I think contributed to the normalization and the desegregation of culture in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know a whole lot about that, but but it really just speaks to the power of art and culture. Um, and, you know, you, music and rock and roll is a universal language, and it doesn't matter if you're the son or grandson of a sharecropper in Arkansas or some, you know, half-Native, half-Jewish kid in Canada, in Toronto, you hear that lick, and it just goes through your entire body. It's yeah. just you feel it in your bones. Yeah. And that's that's the power of art. And yeah. that's why it's really amazing to create stuff. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, you you uh, you 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 work with Robbie. Uh, you get tapped uh, to sit in uh, in the director's chair. Um, obviously, it sounds like you'd done a lot of research prior to uh, to actually getting the gig. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and, you know, how you kind of uh, put this treatment together uh, that uh, in- eventually, uh, you know, sold uh, Robbie and, and Marty and, and the other guys into letting you uh, be the guy. Well, I just tried my best to to learn as much about this band as possible. Um, I, I read all the books. I dissected Robbie's book. I dissected Levon's book. I read as much as I could. I I listened to all of the music 
And uh, I developed and honed a vision for what I wanted the movie to be. Um, and in a lot of ways, although not totally, it's very similar to my original inception. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think what set me apart from perhaps more established filmmakers that I spoke to this earlier is that I told Robbie, I sat across from him, I'm like, dude, I'll fucking die before your movie's not amazing. I'll give this everything I have to give. Like this, I, I'm going to make your movie like my life depends on it because it does. And you're not going to get that if you go to, you know, Academy Award nominated, whoever, who's got, you know, six projects going at once. Like, this is my thing. I, I got you. Just give me the chance. And I think that pitch resonated because he remembers being passionate years and old. young and yeah, yeah. Wanting, to, to wanting to make his mark. And telling Ronnie Hawkins, I'll fucking play until my fingers bleed. Just let me in your band. I will do anything. Yeah, that's what he um, did. And so, you know, I, I think Robbie and I are akin in that spirit. You know, we come from the same, you know, street smart Jewish gangster lineage in Toronto that instilled in both of us this sense of like fucking grind and schlep and, and you know, drive and ambition and work ethic. And I think Robbie recognized that and appreciated it. So uh, you mentioned that you're a big fan of, of The Last Waltz. Uh, I personally think that is the uh, the single greatest um, rock documentary ever made. Uh, I literally play that every Thanksgiving uh, sometime during the day while I'm cooking. Yeah, nice. Uh, it's the best. I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's just it's genius in its simplicity and its execution. You take a brilliant filmmaker, you take a brilliant band, you take six 35 mil cameras and you shoot the shit out of that performance. And that's what they did. The interstitial documentary parts are interesting, mm -hmm. but that film shines because of the performance itself. Oh yeah. And what an amazing, you know, and it's, and it's funny to think about it. They shot that movie in a day, like not quite, but kind of in a day yeah. in four hours. And it's just, it's, it's an incredible work of art. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it is definitely a time capsule there, uh, 1976, uh, I think November 25th, uh, which was Thanksgiving Day, uh, put on by Bill Graham at uh, Winterland Ballroom in uh, in San Francisco. Um, uh, you know, you have, uh, you know, first of all, you have a Thanksgiving dinner uh, pr presented to the audience. Uh, you know, you have Lawrence Ferlinghetti, uh, you know, famous poet uh, and book uh, seller here in San Francisco at City Lights, uh, you know, reading poetry. And then you have these, you know, standout performances. Uh, Van Morrison comes to mind, uh, you know, Neil Young. A little coked up, I guess, uh, showing on the on the upper lip, but uh, but still, uh, you know, putting. I love uh, Neil's, <laughs> Neil's performance. Like I've heard people talk about how that wasn't a great performance from Neil. He fucking rocks yeah. in that movie. Yeah, I, I think I, he's I, great. I agree. I agree. And uh, and of course, you know, uh, Bob Dylan's uh, piece uh, is great uh, as well. Um, you know, uh, then uh, the Staple Singers, uh, which was done because they did do an after shoot. Uh, yeah, uh, they did. for a little bit uh, there to get a couple of other uh, people. How about Joni Mitchell singing from the background? <laughs> things like yeah, that. unbelievable. Just, 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 it, it, yeah, just, just an extraordinary uh, set of events that was well captured um, by who we all know is a, a great auteur. 
for uh, Martin Scorsese. So, you know, how, how can you not? So I, I would assume you you probably looked at um, some other uh, uh, films to uh, to kind of get a grasp of uh, this. I would assume D.A. Pennebecker's uh, Don't Look Back uh, was probably on your list as well, huh? And not only was it on my list, I actually interviewed uh, Penny for the film. You did? Oh, before he passed, huh? Before he passed. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the distinguished highlights of my life and career. I mean, I can imagine. Guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very he, jealous. He is <laughs> so seminal and incredible. And he just has like, a, he was just such a lovely man. And I only got to spend, you know, about an hour or two with him. But he was just, that's the only way I can describe it. He was just such a lovely human being. And that was clear, even though it was a short meeting. And, and, uh, you know, I was so sad when he passed and I was grateful that I was able to meet him. And although his interview didn't make it into the movie, um, you know, he's just a, he was just such a, a, a lovely guy. And uh, his his films has been have been very influential to me. The Last Waltz I watched, you know, on repeat. And then, uh, you know, there are other films like Lee Von Stock from a couple of years ago, from like 10 years ago. I in, in it for my health. I, I, I really love that movie. Mm-hmm. Um and other music docs from other genres that I was really inspired by, I, I checked out uh, uh, while I was planning for this film. All right, uh, uh, not to uh, not to add on to the, the the controversy here, but but I I do got to ask, uh, who's the better actor, Robbie Robertson or Levon Helm? Oh, Levon. Yes, right stuff. I don't, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm not allowed to say that, but. <laughs> Yeah, fucking no, Levon. Levon's just so authentic on camera, man. Uh, that's the thing about that's right. That's right. I I got to learn a lot about Levon making the movie, and you know, I think the biggest lesson I learned, and this is no surprise to everybody, but you know, Levon is Levon is Levon. There is no artifice with Levon Hell. He is who he is at every hour of the day, at every time of the day, and that that originality. He is truly an American original. And, you know, that's a quality that is very rare. Robbie certainly does not have it. And, you know, it's 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 amazing. And I'm in awe of that. And I'm sad I never got to got to see Levon or to meet Levon. But, you know, he is a really incredible, legendary musician. And uh, I'm sorry I never got to meet him. Yeah. Oh, you know, and that's that's the, the thing about this band. Uh, you know, Bruce says it uh, in 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 the in in your film uh, that uh, all those guys were incredible musicians to begin with. OK. And then uh, they, you know, do their 10,000 hours uh, in, in, in the Hawks. Right. Uh, and uh, and then and then, uh, you know, backing uh, Bob. Uh, during his uh, transition to uh, to electric uh, music, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. You know, and then you know they do their own thing as the band uh, hold up in Woodstock, and uh, they have three amazing rock and roll singers in the band. Each one just a, you know a different archetype too. Uh, in Rick Danko and Richard uh, and uh, and Garth, it's it's just amazing that you could get away with that. Oh yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's so special. Um, you could build a band, as Bruce says in the movie, around any of those guys. Any of those yeah. guys. Any of those guys. Yeah. yeah they're as they're as a frontman. They're just yeah. so good. Yeah. And I, I, you know, Robbie likes to always talks about himself as sort of like the director of the group, insofar as that as as the principal songwriter, yeah. Robbie would re- retire to his studio 
or or you know get up really early in the morning go to his studio which was a woodshed out out behind his place in Woodstock um and he would just just write songs in the voices of certain guys so sometimes he would bring them to the table and be like you know guys what do you think who wants to sing this one but sometimes he'd be like leave on I wrote this song called the night they travel dips you down you're gonna sing it better than anyone on the planet here it is um and that is you know for someone like Robbie who's um, you know, not as strong a singer as Levon or, or Rick or Richard. It, it, what an incredible thing it was that those guys in a lot of ways got to be his voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they all bring, granted, Robbie is the primary songwriter uh, uh, in, in the band. Uh, and this story does remind me a lot of CCR. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the fraughtness uh, with that group. Not, not, not as much. Eh, it's very similar. You know, John Fogarty wrote all the songs. Uh, you know, the other guys uh, played on them. Uh, you, know, then the, you know, then there was a lot of animosity after the band broke up. It still exists today um, out there. So Yeah, but, it's hard. It's hard because the guy who writes the songs makes most of the money. The, the value is in the publishing. Yeah. But not, not, it's like, listen, writing songs is hard. It's, yeah. And that's not to say that what the other guys did is not hard because at the end of the day, if, if you take one piece out of that equation, you do not have the band. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, sorry, I just have like a, a, a little, this is something I think about. It's a little thought experiment that speaks to what they provide to each other. Um, and it goes something like this. Listen to Robbie Robertson's solo record. Not the, the strongest vocal performances, but you take a song like Showdown at Big Sky or Crazy River, and imagine if Levon sang that, or if Rick sang that, and you had Garth doing his thing to that song. It takes a pretty good song, and it makes it unbelievably incredible. Yeah, yeah. Sim yeah, it's the same could be said. Uh, you know, John, Paul, uh, George, and even Ringo had some pretty cool songs uh after that band they were in, but uh, that band they were in is just way beyond anything that all those each of yeah, those guys of did individually, right? You know, sure, the, sure. the you know the, the some of their parts, uh, you know, sort of yeah. uh, sort of question there. So, so uh, on the interviews, uh, you know, um, which, which of the sit down interviews was the hardest to get? The hardest to get, um, uh, probably. Uh, that's a great question. Hardest to get. Well, I had to, on, you know, six hours notice, book a fight, flight to Belfast uh, to go interview uh, Mr. Morrison. And so that was quite <laughs> hectic for me. Mm -hmm. um, and we sort of did this. We were we managed to turn it into a one-two punch where I was able to go film with uh, uh, Mr. Morrison on a Saturday and then catch... Mr. Clapton on the following um, Monday. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, so that worked out well. Mm. Um, that was a tough one. Uh, there was a scheduling conflict when we were supposed to shoot Mr. Scorsese's interview the first time, and we weren't able to get it that day, which was very stressful for me. Um, but we were able to go back, and he was very gracious about that, um, uh, which I was obviously uh, grateful for. Um, but by and large, most of these folks that I interviewed were just really nice and cool. And, uh, you know, like me, were huge fans of the band. So we had that in common and they were happy to talk about why they love this music so much. 
Yeah, uh, uh, Van the Man, of course, as we as we said, put on just a, a great performance uh, uh, in the last waltz, uh, working with the guys. Uh, you know, a legend in his own right. Uh, the Eric Clapton interview really, really important because, uh, as yeah. we know, Eric really wanted to be a part of the band. Yeah, he he definitely did, and I don't I I understand why they were the best, but more than that, Eric Clapton's interview was important to me as a filmmaker because. He spoke to the addiction and uh, struggles with substances that the guys in the band went through with a clinical knowledge and clarity that I did not expect and an openness and honesty that I did not expect. And that was a very important ingredient um, for my film. Um, and I was really grateful that he was willing to be so open. Well, he famously had his own issues uh, with uh, the the monkey on your back, uh, and uh, and actually uh, has a uh, a charity group that uh, you know addresses that. Uh, and um, uh, so it's it's no surprise. But that that does uh, bring me to the inclusion of uh, uh, Dominique. Uh, is it Bourgeois? Bourgeois? How do you say her last name? Well, I just say Robertson. I don't know what her maiden name is. <laughs> yes, Dominique Robertson, uh, uh, ex-wife of, uh, yes. of Robbie, uh, mother of his uh, children. It's an interesting voice in the film, uh, and and you know she does add weight to 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 ex-husband Robbie's story on what happened. Um, but it's also a really surprise at the end where you know um, you expose her as a, as a, a, an addiction therapist today. Yeah, and, and you know, funny enough, nobody, Robbie or Robbie's manager, Jared, didn't think it was prudent to tell me that information <laughs> before I shot Dominique's interview. So I'm just like, wow, this woman is brilliant. She 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 knows an extraordinary amount about substance abuse and chemical dependency issues. Like I was very impressed. It was only after that, I'm like, oh, she's been helping families overcome chemical addiction issues for 30 years. Yeah. Um, but that voice was, you know, in, invaluable. And uh, it, there has to be connective tissue, I would imagine, to her being this young mother, this young wife, you know, while her husband's business partners and best friends were all descending into the abyss of addiction, Yeah. Um, which is, you know, like a, a hungry ghost that follows you around. Anyone who's experienced it, or knows someone who's been through it knows just how horrible it is. Um, and I really wanted in the film to not sensationalize that. This wasn't like, yeah, rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, cool. It was more like, these guys were really sick, really unwell. And at that time, we didn't have the lexicon to describe this as an illness. It was like, Richard's fucking up. You know, Levon's being irresponsible. Rick doesn't have his shit together. But in actuality, what we know now is, is like, no, these guys were just very ill yeah. and they needed help. Yeah. And that must have been very painful for all involved. Well, you know, uh, uh, the life of uh, a touring musician is hard, regardless of the level that you are at. Uh, it is, uh, you know, uh, 23, 22 hours of boredom uh, with two hours of amazing excitement uh on the other side uh it's quite a, a roller coaster and um you know uh i've talked to uh enough uh, of uh these guys to uh to know that if you don't have a hobby you're gonna descend into uh you know the uh 
the accoutrements of the uh, of the touring life, uh, drugs being the, the the primary one to get you through. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've never been. I play, I learned to play a little bit of guitar when I got this job, but I'm certainly not a musician, and I've certainly never toured as a musician. But I can only imagine. You know, you have to keep yourself busy, and uh, you know, Robbie. He, it's not like he was immune to the pressures of the road. He would drink and do drugs as well. I just think it's a genetic thing. No, that, that you make that point in the film, or Dominique yeah. actually makes that point in the yeah. film, which is I, I completely understand because that's me. Um, right. I've been around it my whole life. I've tried just about everything uh, under the sun. I've had, uh, you know, an addiction issue uh, in my 20s. Um, but, you know, once I realized it, I said, oh. I need to stop. And I was yeah. able to do that without professional help and things like that. But I know plenty that would never could could never, you know, even get to that point without a professional help. And even then uh, rarely were uh, were able to uh, escape uh, through the other side. Yeah. And it's 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 scary and it's horrible. And, you know, this very sad thing happened as I was making the film my own cousin passed away of a fentanyl overdose. And, and you know, it's just the thing, like, I come from this well-to-do Jewish family in Toronto. You know, all of the grandkids are, like, lawyers and doctors and business people and film and the lone filmmaker, me. And, and it's like, that doesn't happen to us. And it did. And it was just this reminder of, like, oh, nobody is immune from this terrible, terrible disease. And uh, it was really, uh, you know, very, very sad and, and you know, a reminder of the uh, fragility of, of life and, and of health. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear that. Um, uh, that does bring up a, a, a little neat piece uh, in the film. And, you know, those of us that uh, have read uh, Testimony know that, uh, you know, Robbie um, was uh, born to uh, a, uh, a mother of uh, Native American descent and uh, who he thought was his father uh, was a uh, a Canadian white man who then was explained that no, your your father was a Jewish gangster. Yeah, the Klagermans. Um and and I think that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. And there's this there's this cut in the film um, where Robbie is explaining to his new you know street smart Jewish relatives about what he wants to do. And he says he wants to play rock and roll. And his uncles are like, what do you mean rock and roll? You don't want to be in furs and diamonds? Yeah. Like you want to play rock and roll? And Robbie explains it a little bit more and they go, oh, you mean show business. Right. Robbie show business. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, that, that world, I can identify with so much because like, that's where I came from. Like, uh -huh. I, I have relatives, my, I have an uncle who, remembered the Klagermans had oh, Klagermans really? friends. Oh. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, Jewish geography is like, a, uh, it's a small world. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's kind of this amazing thing. And, and I, I think that that influence that the Klagermans gave provided to Robbie really instilled with him a sense of ambition um, and, and foresight. It was this idea of like, Oh, you can do whatever you want. You know, your life is limited to your own foresight and imagination. And I think that was pivotal in having Robbie reframe his own experience and, and life and times. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a fun little piece. And, uh, you know, those of us who know the story, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it, he has an interesting upbringing uh, and, and an interesting arc. Uh, it is no surprise that he turns into a great storyteller through song. 
Yeah, I'm not not at all. You know, that I, was you know, I mean, famously with the weight, uh, you know, that that opening line, uh, you know, for you know, when when I figured out that Martin Guitars is in Nazareth, I was like, I mean, talk about your head exploding, you know, sure. Uh, you know, I back when I was in my teens or 20s. But but still, it's like, oh, wow, that's just great. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Going to go into the to, to the guitar shop. Uh, you know, that's what I thought of. I know it's more it's more. Uh, convoluted than that but uh uh and, and in fact it really was just he looked into the guitar as you show in the film and uh you know says uh, hey uh, uh martin guitars are made in nazareth pennsylvania you know, oh that sounds like a great line yeah so yeah so it seems there are five parts to the to the band story there's the hawks uh and uh, the dylan backup band uh as he goes electric um uh, that gets them their 10,000 hours, uh, you know, the proverbial uh, Malcolm Gladwell yeah. 10,000 hours, if you will. Uh, you know, the rise uh, uh, with Big Pink and the Brown album where they, you know, become a big deal out there. Um, uh, and then the drug years, uh, uh, you know, culminating in uh, uh, Dylan's return and then the last show at Winterland in uh, uh, 1976. And then the aftermath and the infighting that has raged uh, since. Does that sound about right? I, I would say that that is um, Robbie's story of the band. Yeah. I think that there are more chapters to add with the other guys, um, but that's that, that sounds about right for Robbie's before he exits stage left. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's fair to say, you know, we talked a little bit about the drug issue between, you know, with Rick and Richard and um, uh, and Levon. Uh, and 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 I can understand the weight of, of that on somebody like Robert, who, who's just trying to be professional, trying to, you know, move this 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 elephant uh, to keep going in the right direction. And, you know, after a while, you just you, you, you just give up the fight, you know, as we know. Uh, with those uh, in suffering through addiction, you um, you know, you're the you're the one that has to make the change. Nobody can do it for you. Yeah, and it's very hard to come to that realization. But you know, I try and have I, I try and have empathy for Robbie's point of view, and you know, I'm an ambitious person myself. I as I mentioned, I see myself in a young Robbie. I sort of get where his head's at. Um, and here he was having worked so hard putting in so many hours to achieve this thing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden his dreams have come true. He has created this body of work that matters. People care. He is respected by his peers. Um, and, and all of a sudden there's this thing fucking it up. There's this, there's this, there's this addiction thing that's getting in the way of that. And I'm sure that must've been very hard to deal with and very painful for him to deal with. Um, and, 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 you know, the sense of not knowing what's going to happen. Um, and I, I can only imagine how frustrating and scary that must've been for him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he tried everything that, that I think, you know, humanly you would do in that situation. A ban is a family. As I, as I said earlier, it's literally being married to multiple people at the same time. Uh, you, yeah. know, you, you may not be having sex with them, but all the other parts go along with it. Let me tell you. Uh, and, um, you know, he, he brings them out to California to work at Shangri-La uh, and, uh, you know, tries to hope that they're get a, a different disposition uh, and, and, and a change of heart. Uh, and it, and it just it just doesn't happen. Uh, and, you know, 
you you just get tired of fighting the the fight and, and have to move on. But let's go back to to the rise here. Uh, you know, with uh, Ronnie and Bob Dylan. Um, you know, where where I said these guys put in their ten thousand hours before getting to Woodstock and and Big Pink. Um, you know, uh, you know what 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 do you think you accomplished with that piece of the film there? Well, I accomplished in, in what regard, just in terms of how it frames the story of the band? Yeah. Well, I think what it just shows and what it really highlights is that this was not a group that just came together willy-nilly. This is a group that were that were hardened together. They went through the ringer together. They bonded together like brothers at war, whether it's playing, you know, gangster-infested clubs along the Chitlin circuit with Ronnie in the early 60s, or getting tomatoes thrown at you with Bob in, in the later 60s. Yeah. It's like, th these guys were brothers. They This was very much a musical partnership, um, unlike, you know, maybe any other from history. Um, and they put in the work together, not just to hone their individual uh, 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 talents as musicians, but also to hone their working relationship, their interpersonal relationship. Um, musically musically yeah musically musically and personally i yeah. mean it's it's hard to be in a band it's hard to be married to five guys at once and have your lives be joined together professionally creatively and and in the business sense um and you have to really have love and respect for your brothers in arms during that time and they clearly had that for one another mm -hmm. um dylan was particularly important i think more so for robbie's creative development. Um, you know, if Ronnie taught, taught the boys how to be rock and rollers, um, Dylan certainly taught Robbie how to write. Yeah. Uh, and, and Robbie was sitting next to the best writer of the 20th century and Robbie was smart enough to take notes. And yeah. I think a, a, a little bit of that genius rubbed off on him. I think you're right. And I, and I think that is really the, the key, the, the split uh, between the good times and, and, the, and the bad times, uh, the bonding uh, of them. It does remind me of, uh, you know, the Beatles in, uh, in Hamburg uh, paying their dues uh, or Creedence Clearwater yeah. Revival, which, you know, started off as the Blue Velvets in junior high school. Uh, you, know, right. uh, uh, you know, while these guys weren't childhood um, um, uh, friends, um, they were still picked up relatively young into Ronnie Hawkins' band, uh, and uh, you know they were, you know, they were the band, uh, you know, for 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 first Ronnie, and then and then uh, Bob, uh, probably it Bob Dylan's greatest uh, uh, productive uh, period of time. Um, so yeah, you you're you're picking up all kinds of great lessons. You 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 probably couldn't have two greater mentors than those two guys to create something different, huh? I think so. And I think, you know, that speaks to who Robbie is. Robbie is sort of a chameleon. He can be whoever he needs to be in whatever situation he needs to be in. If he needs to be a Southern rockabilly guy, he can wear that mold. If Bob Dylan's going to take him to City Lights and hang out with, you know, Ginsburg, he's game. He can do it. And, and I think that speaks to some of his professional and personal successes that he has that quality mm -hmm. um, uh, to sort of blend in and go with the flow. So moving to the next section, what do, you, what do you think you were able to convey talking about uh, the two 
seminal band albums known as Big Pink and the Brown Album, uh, and working with uh, with John Simon because you know I've gotten a chance to interview John. He's a fantastic and amazing musician. Uh, yeah. in his own right, uh, really wanted to join the band. He he told me a story uh, that I'm sure he's told many times before that he went to Robbie one day and said, I, I really, really want to join the band. And Robbie said, John, we already have two keyboard players. We don't need another one. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I can imagine it must have been tough for John to, to look at that brotherhood, be the, the, the sixth brother, but also not the sixth brother. Yeah, yeah, um, in a weird way, yeah. But but you know John, John got into fell into there. You know was invited in. He was one of the few people who was able to to be invited in and have a front row seat of what that brotherhood was like. Um, but you know those bands, those first two albums are absolutely seminal and totally influential. And just the aesthetic and the approach, this idea of like let's just go to this little cabin, this little cottage, and let's make this music the five of us, that wholesome, you know, home cooked approach to the music and to music making, I think continues to, to inspire and influence bands. You know, it, it was unheard of to set up a recording studio, you know, in the basement of your house in 1968. Now it's done all the time. Um, I think in large part to the band. And it just represents one of the most unique creative renaissance in, uh, you know, the, the history of popular culture. This was just a time and a place where extraordinary things were happening from the basement tapes through to music from Big Pink through to the Brown album. Um, you know, this is Robbie Robertson at his absolute creative peak. Um, and uh, it, it, what a time it must have been. Yeah, I really think John uh, Simon coming in, helping them to shape this music uh, uh, was a, a, a big thing. I think Elliot Landy, who's yeah. also in the in the film, who helps to create the imagery of yeah. this this uh, this music, uh, is uh, is important because what they do is they zig while everybody else zags in yeah, 1968 right. 69. Uh, they go back way back in time and start pulling musical influences uh and shaping them into you know a, a rock world um but it has this extraordinary like timeless quality to it yeah and that just speaks to um what inspired them the music that they grew up on folk music the blues r&b um um you know, Celtic music. Yeah, English folk songs. Uh, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Gospel music, church yeah. music. You can hear it all in these songs. The reason why it sounds timeless and like something you haven't heard before is because it's both of those things. Right. It, it, it's foundational insofar as that it's timeless, but putting it all together in that that big old pot of chili is like not. It's like something you have never heard before. And it's totally unique. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it is. It's weird because it, it does sound like it's something that you, you know, from the past, but it's not. It's yeah, it's a, they, they've always been a, a bit of a conundrum 
uh, in that way. They they weren't actual progressing. You know, they weren't uh, you know trying to get uh, you know, louder guitars, distorted. Uh, you know, technological changes. Uh, you know, advent of new keyboards. Uh, you know, Moog had come out by then and things like that. They weren't interested in that. They were interested in like taking things from the past and then giving it some sort of modern quality to it. Uh, yeah. And 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 knowing that each member you know, was just about a virtuoso all in their own right uh, and, and put that together. And as far as influence is concerned, while at the time they may not have been, you know, uh, setting the, uh, the other musicians on fire, uh, longevity-wise, though, you know, they are the godfathers of Americana music, which is a huge piece of uh, music uh, today. Yeah, they, they might have lost the battle, but they certainly won the war in that regard. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. They, 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 did not, they never received, I think, the recognition that they deserved when they were at their peak, although they were always musicians, musicians. Um, their influence is so extraordinary and wide-ranging, and you can hear it in so many different musicians today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just speaks to... Uh, uh, you know, what they brought to the table, the originality and uniqueness of their approach and voice. Yeah, yeah. And they, they definitely achieved that, uh, certainly with those first few albums. Uh, you know, and then things begin to to morph. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, the drugs becoming uh, a part of an issue. It's, you know, kind of what I call the middle years here uh, until the last waltz at stage fright uh, island period. You know, a, a lot of reviewers have called uh, the film a cautionary tale. And, and I think, is this what they're talking about at this point and, and what's going on in there? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think that this question of it being a cautionary tale, yeah, I think it speaks to some of the challenges of um, addiction and uh, substance abuse and, and chemical dependency. Um, I think it's cautionary in that regard. Um but that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if there are other elements of this story that are cautionary. And uh, probably the the uh, the relationships that uh, deteriorated after the fact. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it, it it certainly could be, and and um, you know, that's something that you know I, I explored as best I could in the movie. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's um. You know, I don't know. Uh, there's still some great music that's being made uh, there. Uh, they they go back on tour with uh, with uh, with Bob. Uh, you know, um, uh, after the flood uh, uh, piece, and uh, uh, you know, and then it all culminates with uh, you know what is the the last waltz. Um, now, I, I don't remember, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but. I don't think you spend a lot of time with the 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 reasoning for the break uh, or the 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 split, and and it, and and I know there's been a, and and I'm and I'm trying to remember from all the stuff that I've read over the years that you know there was uh, a, a a an acceptance from everybody that hey look we we've been doing this for 15 years uh, we need a break uh, and you know bands at that time didn't go on hiatus. They just right. broke up, uh, you know, and and maybe, you know, if, if I, I've, I've constantly uh, wondered about this and I've, I've brought this to uh, the attention of several 
band members that have been in that situation of like, why didn't you guys just say we're going on hiatus and take a break? You know, kind of like what Fish did, you know, uh, uh, and then that, that that just leaves so much more open, uh, you know, for the future as opposed to some black and white sort of breakup. But I, I think it was everybody was accepting that this was going to be it. Right. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't there, so I can't really speak to it. I can only I'll, I'll speak to my limited understanding of that. Mm-hmm. But my my thought on that note is that the last waltz was not intended to be the grand finale of the band. The last waltz was intended to be the finale of touring. Yeah. Robbie didn't want to continue being on the road. I think his idea was that they would, just as you described, take the time to relax, to go do their own thing, spend six months or a year working on solo projects, and at some point, come back with a vengeance and and be recording artists in the classic sense and not go out and tour. And that's what the plan was. And the way Robbie tells the story is that eventually he went around knocking and, and no one was interested in rejoining. No one wanted to go back in the studio. No one wanted to get back together at that time. And then two or three years later, when everyone else was ready, and wanted to go back specifically on the road. Robbie was like, forget it, guys. I don't want to do it. I'm exhausted. You know. Good luck. Something like this. Yeah, and he'd been off on uh, pursuing other uh, ventures, uh, you know, movies, uh, scoring movies and things like that. And then his own solo career, which was uh, beginning to take off. Yeah, Robbie's a super passionate and interested guy. Like he he is, you know, when he was like 20 years old, he was wanted to work with Igmar Bergman. Like he's just a unique dude who's always been thinking about the next thing. When he was in his little band, The Rhythm Chords, as a 15-year-old, he wanted to be with Ronnie Hawkins. Then when Bob Dylan showed up, he's like, oh, let's go do that. He latched on to that. And then he created the band. So it's, it's quite natural for him to always be wanting to look for the next thing, you know. And as a creative type myself, I get that. It's hard to do the same thing over and over again. I don't think Robbie wanted to be the type of guy who was 60 years old playing to a bunch of gray-haired people the songs that he's been playing for 40 years. He didn't want to be the golden oldies has been trope. I think that's what he was afraid of. And that's why he didn't want to go back on the road. He wanted to be a dad. He wanted to take his son to, uh, you know, uh, uh, baseball. Um, and I, I respect that. I understand that. Yeah. I, I, I really came away from the film uh, believing without doubt that Robbie still loves all of these guys. Oh, there's no, there's, there's no question. That's a, that is a fact. There's no absolute, people can say what they will about the conflict and about this guy's an asshole and that guy's an asshole, but that cannot be disputed. Uh, Robbie has such a love and reverence for, for his brothers in the band. And, uh, you know, even though there's some negative energy that's enveloping their legacy, you cannot dispute the fact that he just has love for them. Yeah, uh, I, I I could see he misses uh, you know the three uh, that uh, that are gone uh, tremendously, uh, and you know and as we age we remember those glory uh, years and they become more important to us. Um, and uh, I mean, geez, it's it just you know a lucky guy, and I think he knows it. Uh, you know, he was surrounded by some incredible musicians that were able to take those songs and, you know, as you said earlier, um, put make them classics where without those guys, maybe some of the songs that he wrote afterwards could have become classics had the other the other four guys been around. 
And don't get me wrong, I think some of those songs are amazing. I really love Robbie's solo record, but you listen to Show Out of Big Sky and imagine Rick Danko singing it or Levon singing it, it's a different song. Similarly, it's worth, I have to point out with the same breath, that those guys, after they reformed the band, never had, to my knowledge, an original composition ever again. Their most successful song was Atlantic City, which they did an amazing job of doing, but that's a Bruce Springsteen version. Right. Those guys were not writers. They could not write songs. What they did is that they took compositions and they made them amazing, like nothing you've ever heard before. I just have to also clarify that Richard wrote songs, a, a couple of really beautiful songs, but his songwriting energies seemed to peter off after the first couple of records. Um, but it's, you know, the first record, Robbie only wrote four or five songs on Big Pink. There's yeah. a Dylan song, a couple covers. Richard wrote one or two, and Rick wrote one. Yeah. The Brown album, he wrote like 70%. Yeah. And then by the, by the third one, he was writing everything. Well, and, and that that is something else that it it comes up in the in the film and and it's part of the story. And that is, Robbie was more than willing to let these guys come in and be songwriters. They just didn't continue to step up to the plate. Is your point? Yeah. Oh, that's that's Robbie's recollection, and and I think that you know it's not even like he allowed them to to come in and be the songwriters. It was like it was like he wanted his relationship with Richard to be like Lennon McCartney. Yeah. That's what their original dream was. And I think it was hard for Robbie when Richard's output stopped because Richard brought a melodic ear to the table that Robbie didn't have. You know, Richard could find chord progressions that Robbie couldn't find. And I think it was really painful for Robbie that that sort of disappeared. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It, 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 it's a very challenging thing. And, you know, this is the whole thing about it. It's like, this was the band where it was greater than the sum of its parts, but I would assert that the parts were not equal. Mm -hmm. I think the contribution of songwriting is bigger than the contribution of, of arranging and being able to play great parts or sing great songs. And some people might be very uncomfortable with that, especially in, in the context of this specific group. But at the end of the day, if Robbie doesn't write the songs, they are nothing. If you wanna know what the band is without Robbie Robertson, you have to listen to Moondog Matinee. That's what the band would have been without Robbie. That is an album full of, of old covers. And it's a cool record, but it's not The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down or, yeah. you know, The Wait or Cripple Creek or Stage Fright or Ophelia or on and on and on. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, because it, it does. It always comes down to the song, doesn't it? It's all, it's all about writing. Everything's always about writing. And I think that when the guys started out, when they were young men you know teenagers it wasn't cool to be a writer you know like the nerds were the writers who were in like the brill building in new york but they were the fucking rockers who were out and about that changed in the 60s dylan changed all that yeah and robbie has always had a natural air of intellectualism about him he's always been interested in art and culture and and in ways that the other guys have not been interested in that's why he got on with dylan and, and was a good sidekick for to, to be Dylan's guy. Yeah. Um, some people are writers. Some people are not. Writing is really, 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 really difficult. And and anyone who cracks the magic code, you know, they should be rewarded for it because it's not easy. Um, and uh, it, you know, I I, I don't know. It, it's just a really challenging, challenging uh, discussion. Well, those songs have stood the ultimate test, which is time.
Uh, yeah. And Robbie wrote most of the songs, so he does does deserve the, the the credit. And I think history makes that apparent. I think your film makes that a, a, apparent. Um, but you know, in in the cautionary vein that we talked about a little bit, I I, I I'll ask the question. Although I think both of us are going to say no, it just was what it was. But could it have been any different? I can't speak to that because I wasn't there, and that might be a disappointing answer for you. I don't really know. There are bands today who, because of experiences of older groups like the band, share everything equally. And it's like my thought on that is like, all right, if that's how you guys want to roll, then like all the power in the world to you. But it's like as a as a creative myself, as someone who who makes films and and does illustration and draws and paints and writes, if you write the thing. That's that's the that is the biggest contribution. If you're sitting there looking at a blank page of paper and you can turn that into the night they drove old Dixie down or you can turn that into the weight, that is a contribution that is the most valuable. Mm. Um, you know, the person who interprets that song and makes it amazing. That's a very important part of the puzzle. But in my mind, it's it's 60 40. You know, I don't think it's equal. And some people might be very uncomfortable with that, and that's fine. Um, but if you don't have the original, if you don't have the songs, you don't have the writing. What are you? What are you left with? It's, it's, it, you know, you're a cover band, and you might do great covers, but you're not standing the test of time doing Moondog Matinee. Now, now, you know, and and all of that can be found in the film. Uh, you know, Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson. And the band, uh, it is Robbie's tale. Um, but I think it's a fair uh, assessment, um, uh, you know. Um, and I think uh, our discussion today, um, you know, sets that record pretty, pretty straight out there. And even if the other guys were around to be involved, they would have to admit um, that that is without without that, we really didn't have nothing. We were we were the Hawks. We were Bob Dylan's you know, backup band. I I've read I've read Levon's biography and there's a part in his book where he says, What do you remember from Chess Fever? Do you remember the words or do you remember Garth's right. you know, that opening organ part? And it's like, I mean, I remember both. They're both invaluable contributions. But if you don't have the thing to come to the table, then Garth doesn't have anything to do. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what I I would suggest. And that's not to that's not to undermine or minim minimize or diminish what the other guys bring to the table. But in my mind, it's just like, you know, writing is is everything. And that's why the writers were paid more. Well, I think I look, uh, most people aren't musicians, but most people have language and they can relate to that. Uh, much greater than what uh, a musician puts on a, a piece of, of, uh, of vinyl versus the words. Um, and to your point, I think it's a 60-40 split, but but it's still 60-40. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I people are going to get upset with me because I'm minimizing, it sounds like I'm minimizing the, um, the contributions of the other guys, and I'm not trying to do that. It's just acknowledging the complexity of this and the reality that they're not 16, 17 years old anymore, just trying to play their music and, and go, you know, meet girls. It's like, this is a big, it's a job. Now. It's a fucking job. It's a, it's a big <laughs> fucking job and it's big business. Yeah. And this, uh, the intellectual property is worth millions and millions of dollars. And it's like, 
I assert that the that the the actual writing is more valuable than other contributions. That's just my opinion. Uh, that that is the classical opinion of the music industry. There are a lot of musicians who would be like, "That's fucking horseshit." I'm not a musician, so what the fuck do I know? That's just you know, having made this film, that's what I come away with. But I have to acknowledge the fact that like I really am just I'm a film guy. I don't know much about this. This is just what it seemed to me through the lens of this world that I've been living in for the last two years. Great answer. So getting to the end of this here, uh, why do you why do you think rock documentaries are just so popular these days? There's there's just it's just they're they're everywhere, which is great. It's fantastic. Um, but it's it you know, are we in a golden age of this? I think there is um, there is an emphasis to celebrate this music. Um, there is uh, a desire to document this extraordinary period in history um, and introduce it to new generations. And yeah, there have been some extraordinary films over the last decade, and and I've been inspired by many of them. Um, and uh, you know, I hope these films continue to get made. Um, because they're a lot of fun to watch and they're a lot of fun to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what's next for you, Daniel? I mean, if, well, we're, if we're ever allowed out to make films again. Yeah, well, we'll be shooting a film probably this year, but maybe some point next year. Um, but I am, you know, working on a couple of things that are exciting for me, a couple of music-related projects. Um, oh, and, you're going uh, deeper. One, you're going deeper. One music project that has a strong tie to the Bay Area um, oh. uh, so that's like your neck of the woods. Um, but, uh, I'm, I, I also got into documentary filmmaking because I'm very interested in politics and human rights. So I'm working on a, uh, sort of an international story about culture and conflict around the world. Um, I'm working on another music film with, uh, another, uh, rock star who I very much admire. Um, and then there are a couple that, that obviously of shall remain but, nameless right now. That absolutely will be remaining nameless right now, but uh, I'm sure your listeners will be very familiar with. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm just keeping busy and uh, you know working hard. So when the quarantine's over, I can go shoot some movies. Well, Daniel Orr, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for your thoughtful research and for having me. It was a lot of fun chatting. Thanks to Daniel Rohr. Make sure you all go find the documentary, Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, available now at Amazon Prime, YouTube, Apple TV, or go to oncewerebrothers.com to buy the Blu-ray. It's really good, and I can't wait to see what this young director has coming up next. 
Okay, I'm getting back up on the soapbox again. While I was researching and checking news uh, on the band, I came across a small suggestion from a professional friend that maybe the band's song, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, should be reassessed in the way we are reassessing the statuary around the white world these days. Hmm. Look, I get uh, the statues put up, especially by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, to intimidate African Americans. Wholeheartedly, I get that. Get rid of those in public spaces or move them to appropriate places like a Civil War battlefield where the docents can put them in context. I most certainly get the rage that must be felt passing one over the last 100 years or so. By the way, most of these hit jobs were put up in the 1920s by the DOC. And wanting to obliterate that symbol of white supremacy. I want that too. I get that. We should reevaluate our monuments and memorials to those whose primary fame was in oppressing a people. But a song by a bunch of guys who revered black music and black people? Uh, I'm thinking that's a bridge too far. But let's look at the song. To me, its main themes are the after effects of war. Virgil, the protagonist who sings in first person, is a dirt poor man willing to chop wood just to feed the family. He's lost a brother to the American Civil War, whom he considers, along with a lot of other good men of the age, the best, a common refrain after a devastating war. There are a couple of lines that raise an eyebrow, such as the name Robert E. Lee, but since the story takes place after the war and in Tennessee, I'm betting that is a riverboat, uh, as that was a, a common name for them. The other line that uh, you, uh, you can't raise a cane, uh, the brother who uh, kills first uh, from the Bible, in defeat. And there is some suggestion that Robertson heard a story from Levon's father about how the South would rise again. Uh, you know, that's hard to digest on its own, but it is not on its own. The song is about defeat, and what it brings is hardship. And really... At the most, that's it. Maybe someone should have picked a better cause before picking a fight. Um, but that's not Robbie Robertson's fault or the band's fault. So should this be banned from listening? <laughs> well, as opposed to those statues, which are all out in public, uh, to play the song, you have to choose to do so. I guess it could come on the radio if anyone still listens to one of those. Uh, but again, y you can change the station. And it's not intimidating anyone as far as I can tell. Um, not sure the band's song is played at KK rally. KK rallies? Three Ks, right? Uh, like I care. And if so, I I'm betting Robertson would seethe at the very idea. To me, the big difference is that this is just a cinematic story in a song about a past time in our collective history told from a particular perspective that fit the motif Robertson was trying to capture. And one, he wanted his dear friend and true Southerner in the band, Levon Helm, to feel attached to 
and sing well. Yeah, mission accomplished. It's not like some gone-with-the-wind lost cause bullshit trying to reframe the antebellum as some sort of lost paradise. In fact, it's the opposite. War sucks. War is death to family. War is poverty. Anyway, I just found it interesting and thought you all might uh, think so as well. Uh, If I'm off or you want to school me, please do reach me at Swain underscore Christian on Twitter. And uh, I'll gladly engage uh, a bit on this one. Okay, that's it for this week. Off the soapbox. I'm going to put it away. Um, But not for long, huh? Next week, we're going to begin our series with the immediate family. I got to speak to all five of the guys, that being Danny Korchmar, Wadi Wachtel, Russ Kunkel, Steve Postel, and first up will be Leland Scalar, who seems to get thrown into Facebook jail now and again. We'll talk about that and his 50-plus year career as being one of the first called bassists in the business, so please come on back for that one. Until then, y'all know what to do. Keep up the rockin'. by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 